This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Henry Wallace is a good example because when you have a serial killer, you've got multiple victims and you don't want to blur them all together. So I would have Henry talk about them and draw. And the other good thing about a drawing is you can then use that in a kind of third distant way to say, gee, now what was going on over here? What is this all about? And you can use it to get more of the detail. So you're not just sitting there talking with them. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked Presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Ann Burgess is a legend in the history of crime and forensics in America. She's the nurse who helped shape the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. Now she's a researcher and a professor. Dr. Burgess and her co-writer, Stephen Constantine, wrote a book called A Killer by Design, Murderers, Mind Hunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. And in that book, they tried to answer the question, what drives someone to kill and how can we stop them? So all of this really started with you in the 1970s, and you were an RN at the time. I really started out just wanting to be a nurse psychotherapist when I finished my doctorate. And then I was called to see if I could teach a course over at Boston College. So I said yes. And that's where I met Linda Lytle Holmstrom. And in the process, she wanted to talk to me about some of the projects that she was doing. And she also told me that you better be doing research because that's what how you work in academia where you have to keep publishing. And so as she's talking about rape victims, and as she explained it, she knew that the women's movement was really pushing on the issue of rape. And she had been going to some of these what they call consciousness raising groups. And I was really fascinated with it. She wanted to study this, but was having trouble finding victims. Now, that's a problem that there still is a problem. Victims are very invisible. They're very hard to find. And certainly back in those days, it was. But I figured that they were coming into hospitals when they needed treatment. So I began saying, let's see if we can find some that way. So that's really how it started is that I joined in a research project with Linda Holmstrom. We did that for a whole year and came up with some major publications. 
and it was the FBI that really found me from another law enforcement officer when uh, one of the agents was doing what they call a road school out in the West Coast. The women's movement had put enough pressure on Congress that Congress was saying to headquarters, to the Bureau, that you should be training your special agents who can then go and train the law enforcement. So we're talking mid now, by the time I get to the FBI, it's now going to be, I think it's around 1978. Who was your first contact with the FBI? My very first contact was Roy Hazelwood. Now, Roy was the new agent that was given the task of having to train in the area of rape victimology. So he brought me into the FBI for training, uh, lecturing. And in that process is where I met first Bob Ressler, who was really the protege, if you will, of the very kind of informal profiling program that was going on. And he then introduced me to John Douglas. Those are the two agents that are characterized in Mindhunter. Were they happy to have you? This is two men in law enforcement. What was the relationship like from the beginning? I wouldn't say that I was an equal in that they needed the content. And what I've learned a lot about from the behavioral unit down there is that they welcomed any new information that they felt was credible because they didn't have it. And yet they were given the task of training. So from that standpoint, I think they appreciated my being in a consultant role. That was my initial role going in, of course, just to lecture. Stephen, you're her co-writer. Do you want to jump in on this? I'd add real quick that that was sort of very rare at the time. Like Dr. Burgess was saying, that throughout the FBI as a whole, consultants and outsiders were not welcome, were not invited into the organization. So within the BSU, for Robert Ressler to initially ask for her expertise on the project that him and John Douglas were working on and to invite them in was an unprecedented step. And they did really do that because they valued her expertise in a subject that was incredibly important at the time and that There were very few other people who could speak to that subject matter. And obviously, you were pulled into some big cases. Did it take very long for that to happen? Well, that's the research. What the lecturing turned into was talking informally. They were all supposed to be doing some research. And so when I talked to Ressler and Douglas, they had decided to interview these serial killers. They had already been doing some of it. Not that type. They had been doing more of the uh, Squeaky Fromm and Charlie Manson. So they had been doing those on their time off on the weekends Mm -hmm. when they were out, usually like out in the West Coast. So when we decided to do that, I said, do you have a list of these serial killers? And they did. And I think it was a list of, I don't know, 82 or 85 that were there. And we started going through it for what we felt would be the most interesting in terms of having documents of having some kind of records that could back up when the agents would go in and interview them. So it dwindled down to the 36. So we talked in depth in the first book that we wrote on the 36 serial killers. So you felt like you had gotten to know the survivors, sexual assault survivors and maybe families, but that you hadn't quite known the killers yet. Is that right? That's right. And Well, the study that I first talked about was with living victims, victims coming into Boston City Hospital. Those are the ones that Linda and I talked extensively with and followed. I did the follow-up to see how their lives went after being raped. But of course, none of those at that time were any homicide victims. So it wasn't until we got into the um, serial killer study that 
I had access to the records and also had access to some of the surviving victims of some of these serial killers. So, Stephen, what are the details of one really big case that Dr. Burgess took on? I think one of the big cases, and we do talk about it in the book, is the John Barry Simonis case. In the Simonis case, he wasn't necessarily a serial killer, although that's a bit up for debate. He was a rapist, a repeat rapist, who escalated the behaviors of his crimes and became more and more violent as they progressed and went along and as he eluded law enforcement across multiple states. And Dr. Burgess was brought into that one to speak with some of the victims to help with the profiling process. And that was a really interesting case. She was down in New Orleans helping with that. And Dr. Burgess, you have a really sort of interesting anecdote about the call you got when you returned home, if you might want to share that one. Right. So when I got home from that, the case, I get a call from the unit chief at the time. And it was so unusual for him to give me a call. And I kind of was curious about, he said, how did the case go? And et cetera, et cetera. And I said, it, it went fine. And later, what I found out is that they had gotten, the BSU had gotten a call saying there was a female down with the group of agents that was impersonating a uh, FBI agent. That was you. <laughs> so they had to verify. Now, that's a very serious thing, you know, and I didn't realize it until oh, maybe a couple of weeks later I was down and we were able to, <laughs> to get it straightened out. But I thought that's one of the funnier moments. What is the biggest mistake they make in taking down that information or how they treat the victim, do you think? What would you tell people who are just starting out? Well, one of the things we say is you have to initially say when you're sitting there with the victim is that you really are sorry for what happened. You have to connect with them. And one of the ways is to say, I'm sorry that we have to go through this. I can appreciate how hard this may be for you, but I need the information to be able to help in capturing the suspect. So you tell them what your job is in a way that is, you don't just start right out with, well, tell me what happened. You know, you have to build the relationship in as short, but as uh, complete a time as possible. And I think that's where a lot of the new agents or the new law enforcement would miss. They think like they go to a robbery and they say, well, tell me what happened. And that's not as sensitive a a, um, experience as any type of sexual contact. And that's a really important, I think, element of the early work that Dr. Burgess did in the 70s when she first arrived at the academy as well, was she spent a lot of time training law enforcement officers and FBI agents how to interview and connect and talk with victims of sexual assault. You know, the culture at the time was one of dismissal, a lack of belief. And so that kind of permeated into how law enforcement officers would first reach out and talk to these victims. And Dr. Burgess' work really completely changed that, switched it up so that there were new protocols put in place and it was a much more effective process. I would just add that Rory Hazelwood and I wrote a checklist so that the law enforcement could go in and say, part of my job is to go through a series of questions that have been written down. So the person knows that this is something that's routinely done. It's like when you go in for any kind of a health matter, they pull out a sheet of paper and they check off. So that would help to kind of put some objectivity to it. So we recommended that. And of course, it was used in the textbook. So I would say that for some of the questions where you had a really reticent, hesitant type of victim, which you often could, they would feel like you are trying to get the essence of the experience. Okay. 
Stephen, can we talk about another case? I'm interested in learning a little bit more about the women who survived these and how they contribute to the profiling. I think one that was really interesting that we discussed and that we talked about in the book is Opal Horton and Missy Ackerman. And these are two young girls. I think they were six or seven, I believe, at the time. And these were two young girls that lived in the Midwest and they were going for a bike ride and a car pulled up to them as they were biking along. And a man said, you know, I'm trying to get to so-and-so. Can you point me in the right direction? And they did. They told him where to go. He said, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. And so he backed up a little closer to him. And then he jumped out of the car. He grabbed one of the girls, Opal Horton. He put her inside the car. She tried to get out, but she noticed that he had taken off the door handles from the inside so that she wouldn't be able to. So this was all very well planned out. She jumped out of the window and was able to escape that way while the perpetrator was grabbing her friend, Missy Ackerman, and putting her in the car. Opal got away. Missy Ackerman was driven away in the car. Opal could watch through. She was hiding behind this big tire from a John Deere station and watched as her friend was beating on the back of the window with her little fist screaming for help as she was getting driven down the road. And Dr. Burgess was brought into that case to interview the surviving girl. Nobody knew how to talk to her. She was dismissed for a long time because she was just a child, so people didn't think she had anything valuable to say. And Dr. Burgess was flown in, and she used this really novel drawing technique to help this little girl express all these things that were in her head, but that were too terrible to actually speak or to discuss or to put words to. And I'll let Dr. Burgess tell that story a little bit. From the pictures that the little girl drew, a police artist was able to sketch the perpetrator, and that was an important tool in helping to put an end to this case. Tell me your impressions of all of this, Dr. Burgess. Yeah, I was really rather annoyed that they waited so long to call me because over a week had passed before anybody had thought to even talk with Opal. So when I went out, I used drawings anyway as a technique for communication. And that's always an easy way to talk with young children. And so the drawings that she gave were very detailed in her mind, as well as being put on paper. And you can really, as you look at this series, I think there are about seven or eight drawings, you can actually see her deteriorating in her thinking because you get closer and closer to the time when the killer pulls little Melissa into the car and you know that this is what's really upsetting Opal. But she gave information that was helpful, not only in the drawing, she described, she said, you know, he had these things sticking out of his face. And those, of course, were whiskers, but she didn't know the worst whisker, but she said she had these things sticking out of his face. Now, this was on a Sunday. And so we figured maybe something had happened over the weekend that he was on what we would call kind of a spree. And it turned out that he was, that he had done another rape. He had done some other kinds of crimes that weekend. And this was kind of a culmination of it. But Opal gave us very good information. We always put up the actual picture when they finally got him. The name was Brian Dugan. But the artist's sketch is very, very revealing and very, very accurate. So I think that was important for the agents to realize that little children as young as seven could give you information from their memory. She had a good description of the car. She had where things were, that it was old. She was pretty close on the type. She didn't say the exact type, but she said it was the color. She gave the right color, and she gave other details that were really amazing for the law enforcement to realize how much you could get from a child. 
And then when, uh, I think the other important thing is when little Melissa's body was found, I had worked with one of the female agents that had sent one of the female FBI agents in. And of course, I had gone back home. And so that was up to that agent to go and meet with Opal and to tell her about her little friend. And then the little girl, after the agent tells her that they had found Melissa, she said, I want to do some drawings. Mm -hmm. And she does some drawings that she wanted Melissa's family to have, as well as she kept some. So it was carried over and became a very, I think, as much as possible, a comforting way to talk about her. And she said how much she missed her friends and how everybody missed Melissa. So very sad. One other thing to remember is that Dr. Burgess's initial work with the behavioral science unit at the FBI was sort of twofold. There was a part of looking at serial killers, the 36 killers, their original 36 killer serial killer study, and looking for patterns and behaviors that were common amongst them, these trends that they could say, ah, this is something that serial killers do, so we can use this information as data going forward when we're looking for serial killers that are on the loose. So there was that side looking at interviews and sort of all of this big data and boiling it down into something that would be usable going forward. And that going forward process ended up being the profiling process. So that drawing technique that Dr. Burge was just describing, she actually used that with some serial killers as well to have them draw out what their crimes were like in their own heads. Oh, wow. They would often draw themselves from above as if they Mm. were outside of their body, above their head, witnessing these crimes happen as if they weren't accountable for them. Disconnecting. Yeah, absolutely. So that technique also applied to the other side, to the offender side, to learn more about how their brains worked and, again, to apply it further to the profiling process. Will you tell me about one of those experiences with the serial killer who was making drawings that are sort of disconnected from his crime? Yeah, well, Henry Wallace is a good example, and I think in the book we do have a couple of his drawings. And why that was so important is because when you have a serial killer, you've got multiple victims, and you don't want to blur them all together. So I would have Henry talk about them and draw. And the other good thing about a drawing is you can then use that in a kind of third distant way to say, gee, now what was going on over here? What is this all about? And you can use it to get more of the details so you're not just sitting there talking with them. And I found that that is what worked. It would give us more information about it. And that's what Henry did. He had a total, I think, of 11 victims. We only were working with the North Carolina ones, and I think two were in South Carolina. So of the nine, it was interesting to see how he would describe how he would meet the victim Then what he would do, because he did a sequence and took them to different parts of the house or the apartment. The other thing I would do is then match it with the uh, actual crime scene and see how much looked like what happened. He actually confessed to two murders that police didn't know about. He had set a fire on the stove, and so the apartment went up in flames. And when the firefighters got there, they just saw this woman and thought it was an arson kind of thing and never saw it as a murder. And there was one other case where they didn't know that it was Henry. So it also was an opportunity to get more of the victimology out. So with Henry Wallace, he was willing to do all of this. Did he enjoy talking to you and explaining the drawings that he was doing for you? 
Well, Henry Wallace was kind of a complex person where he really did feel after the fact that he, and he apologized in court to all the family members that were there saying that there was no reason that any of the victims had anything to do with their own victimization, that it was all his fault. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. So aside from what you contributed to the sentencing, what did you learn from him specifically just about his mindset or what is applicable to other serial killers based on his drawings and the way he viewed himself as a killer? Well, Henry Wallace was able to, as other of the persons that were interviewed, was able to go back to their childhood. We really found that there was something that happened in their child development that kind of set into motion the thought process. And what Henry Wallace remembered was witnessing as a young, I think it was only like eight or nine, a gang rape of a young girl in the neighborhood. And then within a few days, the police came to the boys that they arrested And he found that very exciting, too. So in a scenario like that, where probably other boys in the neighborhood had witnessed that, they didn't react that way. But to Henry, that was something that he thought about over and over and obviously then became part of his criminal behavior. Something else had to have been going on with him, right? Because as you said, other people had either heard about it or seen it, and they didn't go on to be serial killers. An external situation can affect a group in very different ways. So for Henry, this is the one that he kept talking about. Now, we didn't initially say, well, that's what it was. No, there were other factors of how he's brought up, all-female atmosphere, very uh, strict and domineering mother. There are other kinds of things, of course, the absent father, never knowing who his father was, which we found in other backgrounds of serial killers. Mm. That's also sort of the the classic question, right? Is it nature? Is it nurture? You know, what causes these serial killers to exist as the way they are? And Dr. Burgess has always said that it's both. And in the case of multiple people seeing the same type of crime, but only Wallace reacting and living out his life in a certain way, you know, that has to do with this very sort of patterned way of thinking. He witnesses this moment made an impression on him. It became sort of the food of his fantasies. He would play it over and over in his head, getting thrills from it until he sort of took it on as something that he wanted to do. And as he's repeating these fantasies in his head, they're becoming bigger and bigger and more and more authentic to him until the point that fantasy becomes more authentic than reality itself. And so it spills out and it becomes his reality, becomes his lived experience. When you're describing Henry Wallace, it made me think of Edmund Kemper and his obvious disdain for his mother. Did you interview him also, or did he do drawings for you also? Oh, we had quite a bit of documentation on Edmund because he, again, was a big talker. And he was very articulate, very bright. And the agents, I think, interviewed him as much as four or five times. So we had the interviews there and could kind of tell Bob Ressler was particularly interested in him, the kinds of questions to ask. But he also remembered, and he, of course, is still alive, Mm -hmm. as is Henry, but he would keep going back. It was a very different kind of a thing that he experienced, and that was when he got told that he had to live in the basement of the house while his sisters were up two floors up, and whatever that meant, and maybe things had happened that he was never able to tell You have to realize that some of these things, because they're sexual, are going to be very secret. And it is hard to access any of that. And so sometimes you have to wonder, unless you get a chance to really talk with them more and more, of what it was that actually set it into motion. 
What Bressler did in that interview, though, with Henry Wallace was really rather unique. He brought in a whole, about 12 detective magazines. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the covers of detective magazines, but they are they turned out to be Henry's pornography because they have women bound up. They have them in, in skimpy clothes. They have like a knife around their throat yeah. and things like that. And he would get very excited at that. And that was as a kid that he would look at these. And of course, this was now when he's 35 and, and we're doing the interview in the jail. It was really interesting to see his reaction. All of this data, all of these interviews, all of these impressions that you've gathered add up to what? tangible information that now law enforcement, the FBI, whoever can then use? Is it to stop serial killers? Is it to track them or criminals in general? Is it as an educational tool to hopefully intervene at a young age or is it all of the above? It's all of the above. Okay. And of course, the one that I'm most interested in is to reduce victimization. So what can we do from a preventive standpoint to early on look at the red flags. What should people be worried about if they've got a teenager? One of our cases, the mother really thought something was wrong with her child, found him tying himself up and things like that, takes him to a psychiatrist or psychologist, a mental health person, who says to the mother, oh, he'll grow out of it. Well, he didn't grow out of it. And if you look at some of these cases that we've had most recently, there were very clear warning signs, and yet nobody picks it up and is able to do anything in the school system, family work. I think there was that case out in the Midwest of the young boy, 15-year-old, that then goes in and takes a gun in. He's told he can go back to school. Those were red flags that should have been. He was already saying, I can't get it out of my head. That's your clue. They keep it in their heads and obsess over it, and they don't know how to get rid of it from their head. So they take it out on somebody. That was a drawing. That came out in a drawing that the teacher saw. So that is, again, your technique. That's right. I think the Monty Rissell case might be a really good example of that, too. Monty Rissell was kind of a classic example of a serial killer where he had a lot of the same sort of patterns and behavioral elements that a lot of other serial killers do, in which his parents got divorced when he was very young. I think he had a stepfather that was from the military and used to treat him violently in terms of punishment. His mom would just disappear for long periods of time and not tell Monty or his siblings where she was going and then would just randomly show up again. He moved around a lot. I think he committed some violent acts to animals and children when he was very young. He progressed to armed robbery and rape, and he was caught pretty quickly for that and ended up going to, was he under probation, Dr. Burge? Maybe you can tell that part of the story. Yeah, what's so interesting here is he's very young. He's only 14, I think, at the time when he's picked up, as Stephen just said, The judge sends him to a probation place down in Florida, and he's out of Virginia, so he's transferred down there. Then he even keeps committing some of these offenses when he goes out on weekends and so forth. And then when he comes back to Virginia, he's put on probation with the psychiatrist. And it's during that time that he commits five murders while he's under, I suppose, would be seeing monthly or weekly the psychiatrist. And we talked with the psychiatrist because he was just horrified that he hadn't picked this up. And so the message from there is what can we tell a mental health that are working with young people so that you can find out if they're committing anything further while they're on probation? So that was a big learning curve for us on that case. 
at what point, if you have a young child who is expressing some disturbing behavior with animals or whatever, how, as a parent, do you know what a red flag is and how to intervene for something that hasn't happened yet? You need to get them to an expert that understands that kind of behavior and go over with them. That's where you put them into Drawings are good, what we call expressive therapy, to get that information because they may not tell you right away. But you've got to have them under somebody's supervision to monitor what they're thinking and what they're doing. That's what we suggest. It's not the parent that, well, the parents should get concerned over something. Parents know their children, I would think, as well as anybody. And if you ask any parent after some child has committed a horrendous act, Dollars to donuts, they're going to say that they felt something was up. And other people in the family may say they really worried. Now, a lot of times, nothing's going to happen. But for the times that something does, you really want to be sure that the person has had a chance to be seen for mental health. But somebody that knows trauma and knows what is really serious acting out behavior. Let's talk about the serial killer who can manipulate really, really well, the ones who have all the charm and the charisma that draw people in like a Ted Bundy. Well, those that are successful, if you will, in enticing a victim, getting luring a victim in, like Ted Bundy, he does. He was very social. He's very good looking. And I'm just trying to think of which of our cases we had like that. Ted Bundy was not one in our serial killer study. But Stephen, can you think of one? I think Wallace is a really good example of that. Wallace grew up as very well liked. He dated a lot. He had a lot of girlfriends. He never had any troubles with that. He had some successful careers at different points in his life. So he had a lot of that package of being a normal person that people thought was charming and people wanted to be around and people sort of gravitated to Wallace. And one of the other interesting things about that was he was one of the few serial killer cases that Dr. Burgess and the team worked on in which the victims were all known to him. It was his friends, his girlfriends, friends, and other people that were within his social circle. But yeah, everybody was surprised. They were shocked that Wallace turned out to be who he was, except for his girlfriend. She kind of had a a clue about it. But Hmm. because he was so well-liked, it was sort of out of the blue. You always want to know how the offender accesses his victim. How does he begin? Some of them are just what we call blitz, out of the blue. So there's no way that there's any interaction. But you're asking about those that really con them. We call it a confidence style. And then they act. And that's as much part of the lure, if you will, and part of the crime that they enjoy while they're accessing the victim. That's really very frightening for victims. And I'm talking about a lot of rape victims. That can be the way it happens. There must be just a lot of nuance between the motives of a male killer versus a female killer. Different motives? Yeah. Well, many of uh, women use a different weapon. They use poison. So that we've certainly seen some cases where poison is used. In fact, one of the FBI agents, the wife tried to kill him. It's in the Mindhunter book. And he talks about it rather frequently. It's kind of interesting, but he almost was murdered. She hired a contract on his life. I've done cases where several young women in their teens, when I say young in their teens, and the motive is uh, very different. It's not a sexual motive. It's going to be different motives. So we've talked a little bit about the difficulty of accessing emotionally and for details women who are survivors of sexual assault or of crimes. I imagine there's a total different level of difficulty accessing the motives and the emotions and backgrounds of serial killers. Oh, it is. And that's why we were so interested in trying to do it. And one of the reasons that 
Bob Ressler and I wanted to interview Henry Wallace because he was very different. He was black and knew all of his victims. We didn't have anyone in the 36 that we studied. And the black serial killers were a different group. Now, at the time, there was Carlton Gary was down in Louisiana, and there were other cases, but they just didn't get into the mainstream. You can say there are all kinds of reasons why, but we wanted to look at a variety of motives and a variety of scenarios where crimes had been committed to really try to at least start a dialogue with other people. Because backgrounds, how do you know that they are telling the truth? That's always one of the big questions. We felt we answered that because we had so many documents. The FBI had access to a lot of documents, earlier histories of these men growing up, their, if they had, had any psychiatric, if they had any criminal records, what their school records were, any of those kinds of things. So that's how we felt that we answered that question of how do you know that they're telling the truth? I would add, too, that yes to your question that very difficult to sort of get into the mindset of a serial killer. But a lot of times when Dr. Burgess and the agents would start speaking to these serial killers, the incarcerated ones, they would say, yeah, I'm glad you're here to talk to me because I don't know why I did my crimes. I would like to understand them myself. Mm. And so a lot of them were very willing to talk. The thing that got a little tricky is they also had this habit of always wanting to outsmart authorities. Mm. So they would test the agents a lot of times too with false information. So if the agents didn't really sort of iron clad know their cases, they could start getting deceived and lied to, and the incarcerated killers would get a thrill out of that. So they had to really be on top of everything to make sure they were getting incredibly accurate information. But even someone like Kepper, one of the most famous serial killers out there, he wanted to talk about his content to such a degree that he agreed to do a satellite interview with the FBI Academy to talk to Ressler and to all these agents in training to share his story just to have that platform, which sort of goes back to this idea of like hubris and taking pride in their acts and sort of interestingly along those lines so we talked about Simonis when Simonis was in jail he learned that another inmate had confessed to committing one of the crimes that Simonis had oh. and that really upset Simonis yeah. he got all angry about it and said why would that guy do that that's that's my crime I did that so there were all sorts of different elements that kind of came out there about how every serial killer just really wanted to be known and to take pride in their cases. Very strange. Dr. Burgess, can you think of someone who you've interviewed who at the end of their story, you just thought, gosh, just one wrong turn. If there had just been one different turn, this person would have been different. Maybe it wasn't a bad childhood. It was just a wrong decision and something got flipped and this was a wasted life. That's an interesting question. I think that one of the problems that they got into is once they started killing, that is such a profound experience that they couldn't stop. And I I think we've said that before, is they couldn't stop themselves. So could they have avoided that first one would be the question. And I would say they probably all could have, but clearly they didn't. So what is it that helps someone stop? They even would write that. Remember, that was one from the 1940s. That was one of the first cases that Bob Ressler liked. And on the mirror in red lipstick, the killer had wrote, stop me. I can't stop myself. Mm. So what it ever is that makes that first turn, like you say, 
And that's a good question to have asked all of them. We are in the process of trying to look at a study that would ask what went wrong? What could have actually, what could have stopped you earlier? And I know that Henry Wallace said he should have been stopped earlier. A lot of the killers actually gave experiences where they could have been stopped. Now, this is after they've already done something, but they never just start killing. There always is some prelude with some other crimes. So from an assessment standpoint, court would be a place to start with really looking at the nature of the offense that someone is standing before a judge for. The problem is so many of the defense lawyers want to reduce the charges to get them lighter sentences in general, that you never necessarily know what that first crime is. Hmm. A rape could be reduced to a sexual assault, but it's certainly not the level of a rape. So you'd have to somehow get somebody that looked at the full incident and made a decision to help. But even a lot of the killers would tell you, and they did tell Dr. Burge, you know, they couldn't stop. They needed to be caught. There was no way of stopping. And when they're in prison and uh, opportunities for parole come up, they just say, nope, you know, you don't want to do this. This isn't going to work out for anybody. So most of them will, like Dr. Burge said, there's this progression where there's these violent acts in their childhood that oftentimes would turn into sexual crimes and would turn into serial killer crimes. The only sort of exception I can think of is the Bernadette Prodi case, where it was this teenage girl who was trying to sort of elevate her social circle, who was sort of the poor girl in this community that was a fairly wealthy community. And she was just really desperate to sort of make friends and to be accepted. And she murdered teenager Kirsten Marina Costas in 1984. The attack was very deliberate and set up, but maybe it wasn't intended to be an actual murder, more of a scare technique. And then she's moved on with her life and hasn't committed any crimes since. So that might be the one exception, but Hmm. I think that one makes the rule pretty much. What do you think is the one thing that we can do as a society to help mitigate the violence? Is it intervention when kids are young? Is it reduction in domestic violence? Is it mental health education? Well, I think that domestic violence is very important because many of these cases, things start in the family early. And if the parents aren't on top of this kind of watching their kids, a lot of these parents are not. They can be, well, you heard from our study, the absent father. It's very hard for these men that don't have somebody in authority that's kind of setting the rules and disciplining them. That's why they, I think as Stephen has said, that they uh, look to the police as authority figures. So they Sometimes their crimes are more in the service of putting it over on the police than it is for the victim becomes the target. So I think that it's got to start early. It's got to start with understanding how these matters occur. The other thing that I don't think we found in our study, but sometimes is used, is how much do alcohol and drugs play a factor. Mm -hmm. Henry Wallace, who was taking crack cocaine every day and killing almost every day, by the time you heard his confession, you'd never be able to get a jury to convince themselves that he had any kind of mental problem. Hmm. So, yeah, it's really interesting that they build up enough of their immunity that the drug dealer, his drug dealer, should have known that this was going on. It's actually his girlfriend, Sadie, that finally realized Henry was killing all of their friends. So it's interesting, the dynamics, if you will, of what went on in that situation. But start young. We know that this starts young. Don't forget, these are primarily going to be strangulation type of killing. So that's being close and personal. There's a contact with the victim. Mm -hmm. And that's the way most of your domestic violence is. 
and I don't think we have a good handle on how to handle those types of cases. Certainly, we're we're looking at a data set now just of strangulation. I have over 400 cases of female strangulation murder cases and trying to see whether it makes a difference if it's manual or ligature. Can you believe that's never been really looked at before? So there's a lot that hasn't been looked at that we kind of answer your question. I think the more information that we can get that people can take a look at and decide if it's useful is what's key. So I think uh, in the context of prevention, I think one of the stories that you shared that's really helpful for people is the one about Rissell and the brother with cancer, if you want to share that one. Yeah. You always want to ask, is there any victims that you didn't kill? And Rissell said, yes, it was his fourth one. And she had talked to him. He was going to kill her, but she had a father that was dying of cancer. And he had a brother that had cancer. And he just said she had enough problems on her hand. So he just let her go. Wow. Yeah, she never reported it. And I bet that there are other cases that that happened to. I'm not sure we asked Henry that because he had admitted to a lot of rapes. So all of these things in the way that people can take histories and learn from them, I think, gives us more and more just add to the scenario and try to get some of these young cases. You've got to look at some of these teenagers and what is motivating their behavior. What do you envision your legacy, which you're passing forward to other people who are profiling or who are interviewing survivors and victims? What I hope is the impact of that this is a really traumatic event when you're talking about unwanted, any type of unwanted sexual contact. But the other thing is to do a really good interview with the victim because that material and that interview can give information to law enforcement and we should be sharing more and more. A lot of times that won't happen. It depends on jurisdictions and things like that. But the victim is really the one that can tell you the information about how that crime was committed when it's rape or sexual assault or attempted murder. And we should be learning from that. I don't think we do that enough. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Diane Fanning on her time with a serial killer. When I asked him what, he used all sorts of methods to kill people. And I said, which do you prefer? And he said, I like manual strangulation so I can hold their throat in my hands and watch the light fade from their eyes. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Wicked Words. 
Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.